morning. Thank you for coming today. First, let's address the topic that's probably on everybody's mind. How did this happen? Well, here's what happened. So two or three weeks ago, Pastor Jim, he asked me if I would arrange for preaching this morning, which I did right away. And praise God for men who, after I haven't contacted them for months, the last time I contacted them was asking them for a favor, who step right up and immediately say, whatever you need, I'll be there. And that's what he did. And so I was all set. Until this week, when he sent me an email, and uh, he said, uh, I think I might have the coronavirus. I'm going to go get tested. And so he did, and the test came back negative. But then on Friday morning, he, he called me and said, man, I've got a bad cold. He said, how would you like somebody up at the mic with all the symptoms of a bad cold during this pandemic time? I said, yeah, I don't think so. That probably wouldn't work well. And being as how it was Friday morning, I didn't have the heart to call up anybody else and say, hey, how would you like to start preparing a sermon for us? So that's how we got here. That's how we got here. But you know what? We're here to study the Word. And, uh, you know, we can do that. We've got God on our side. We've got the Holy Spirit. And so we'll get through this. So uh, the, the, uh, the passage today comes out of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 17. And uh, before, we, uh, before we get into it, I want to bring us all up to speed so we're all at the same point in history on uh, what's going on in Joshua chapter 17. I know most, most everybody is familiar with it, but uh, just to be sure, we're, we're going we're gonna to give a little background. So to do that, we have to go back to uh, Genesis chapter 48. Back in Genesis chapter 48, we have the patriarch Jacob, Jacob who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob, living in Egypt with the rest of the family because a famine drove them there, Joseph, one of his sons, is a leader in Egypt. And Jacob is getting ready. He's pretty close to dying. He's at, uh, he, he's, it's his old age. And so he, uh, he summons Joseph, and uh, Joseph comes to him, and he, Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And a couple of, couple of interesting things happen that will impact our story today. Jacob takes Ephraim and Manasseh, and he pulls them in. He says, starting now, are we getting a lot of back feed here on this? Are we? Because I can change mics. Um, he takes Ephraim and Manasseh and he says, oh man. Okay. All right. Hear me okay? All right, so he takes, the, he takes these two boys who are his grandsons and effectively says, starting now, you two are going to be my sons on the same level as my other sons, like uh, Reuben and, uh, you know, you, you name them, Levi, uh, whoever. You're, you two are going to be my sons, which means Joseph, their father, would not receive one share of the inheritance and one share of the eventual allotment of land in Canaan, but he would get two shares, one for Ephraim and one for Manasseh. 
All right, very important. And also during this, during this scene, Jacob blesses these two boys. He says, may, may, your, may your heritage, may, may your children be uh, in multitudes. May you have many, many, many children. And he also says, may, you, may, may your generations be so blessed that when people want to give another person a blessing in Israel later on, they will phrase it such that they will say, may your lives be like those of Ephraim and Manasseh, okay? So, I mean, it would be the equivalent if, uh, if, if I wanted somebody in here to become rich and I said, may your, may your life be like a Warren Buffett type of thing, right? That's, that would be kind of how, how it would be. So that, that's, that's the backdrop. And then we move into the uh, book of Joshua. And when we get up to the point where we're at, of course, all the wilderness Jews, they've all perished. That entire generation has perished. Moses is gone. Aaron is gone. The only two that uh, entered the promised land are Caleb and Joshua, right? They've crossed, they've crossed the Jordan and uh, on dry ground. They've destroyed uh, Jericho, right? And then they proceeded to destroy the 31 kings, the major powers in the Canaan area, wiped them all out. And then they, uh, they, it was time to divide the land between the 12 tribes. So if you remember, and I know this sounds tedious, but you've got to stick with me, otherwise the rest of it won't make sense. If you remember, on the east side of the Jordan, two and a half tribes, Reuben and Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, right? Half the tribe of Manasseh, they took land on the east side of the Jordan River. So on the west side, in the promised land, that leaves nine and a half tribes. The half is the other half tribe of Manasseh. Okay? So that's where we're at when we come to Joshua chapter 17, verse 14. So what I'd like to do, if we can... Could we just all stand and read this together aloud? Joshua chapter 17, verses 14 through 18. All right. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? Although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me. And Joshua said to them, If you are such a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its furthest boundaries. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. 
All right. Go ahead and have a seat. So what we have here is we got a problem, right? We've got a problem, and we get two sides of this problem. The problem is, is Joshua has allocated this land to the tribes of Joseph, who is Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and their claim is, you have only given us an allotment for one tribe. We're a tribe and a half. And not only that, I think in reading between the lines a little bit, they bring up this fact that the Lord has blessed us all these years, which I think is a reference to back in Genesis 48, where Jacob pronounced this blessing on them to have a multitude of people. They're reminding Joshua of that. Hey, the Lord has blessed us. Why aren't you? Added to this is the fact that Joshua, if you remember back to Numbers 13, where Moses sends out the 12 spies to uh, explore the land, and there's one leader for each tribe. Do you remember who the leader for the tribe of Ephraim was? It was Joshua. It was Joshua. And so he is a member of this tribe. Okay? So they're coming to him basically saying, Brother, what are you doing to us? So that's their side of the story. They need more land. Joshua's side of the story is, well, for one thing, this must, this must just be like deja vu to him because they're using a lot of the same arguments that the, uh, that the, that the other spies used and the people used. So this just must be, you know, 45 years later, this must just be a terrible case of deja vu that you guys have not learned a thing, have you? But Joshua's point is, you're right. You are blessed. You have a lot of people. You are powerful, and that's why you need to go into the forest, you need to go into the plains, and you need to kick those people out and take the land. That's what God had told them to do, right? God had told them when you go into the land, you need to wipe out everybody. Every man, woman, child, everybody has got to go, right? And so as the, as the tribes were getting their allotment, they were supposed to take care of anybody who was left in the land. Their problem, the tribes of Joseph, their problem wasn't that they didn't have enough land. They had an obedience problem, right? And Joshua recognized that. You guys just need to be obedient. And beyond that, supposing Joshua would have said, hey, you guys are right. You've got these... You've got these uh, Rephaim, which if you have the King James Version, it doesn't even use that word. It uses the, the, the word that it means, which is giants. Okay? You've got these giants in the forest over here. You've got the Canaanites with the iron chariots on the other side, which iron chariots, you, know, you can guess that that means that they were a strong military power, right? What if Joshua would have said, you're right, We'll give you some more land. We'll push you up north. Or we'll push you down south. But we'll, we'll give you some more easy land, guys. Would that have solved their problem at all? Wouldn't they still have these pagans right on their border? And the problem with having these pagans on their border is that the God said, eventually, 
you will start intermarrying with them and you will start worshiping their gods. So it would not have solved any of their problems for Joshua to give them more easy land, would it? So that was, that was uh, Joshua's point. So kind of the natural question I think comes to mind, at least, at least it has with, with me in the past, is why didn't God just wipe out all the people in the promised land? Why did they leave any of them? When he took out the 31 kings, why not just go ahead and clean up all of the mess? And you don't have to go too far to find the answer to that question. If you jump ahead to Judges, chapter 3, God gives us the answer to that question. In Judges, chapter 3, and you can turn over there if you like, starts out by saying, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. Now here it is. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. So there's reason number one why God left some of the pagans in the land. They were practice. They were to teach that generation battle tactics and how to fight. Really, you would not want a generation to grow up not understanding anything about war. Especially, you know, you think back to the Old Testament, almost every chapter between here and the New Testament, Israel is fighting somebody, right? They are surrounded by uh, opponents who are constantly invading them. Imagine if God would have taken away all of, all of these uh, pagans out of the land. They would never had to do any fighting for a generation. What happens, what, what happens later on when the Moabites invade? You look around, uh, hey, anybody know how to fight? Anybody have any battle experience? No. no. That's a problem. So the first reason is God left them there to train that generation. Just like we should be training our children, right? In spiritual warfare. It's a dark place. You don't want to just send them, when they're 18 years old, you don't want to just turn them out without any kind of training in warfare, do you? The second reason, the second reason, we can jump to uh, verse 4 in chapter 3 of that. Second reason, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. That's the second reason, to see if, they, to see if they, their, their uh, commitment was legitimate. You remember Joshua read the entire book of the law to these people? What was their response? They said, we're in. We're going to follow every bit of it, Joshua. Joshua said, yeah, probably not. They said, no, no, really. We are totally in. We are totally obedient. Well, how would you ever know if they didn't come up against any enemies? How would you ever know if they were obedient? So that's the second reason that God left people in the land to find out if, if their faith and their obedience was real, right? 
when I first came across that passage some time ago, it was uh, one of those uh, light bulb moments. Because I've always wondered why, and this, was, this is my experience and the experience of a lot of people, why is it when you're first born again, do several things just kind of disappear? Several things just kind of change automatically without any effort? And some things don't. And this passage answered that question for me, all the way back in the Old Testament. For instance, Bible reading. In 1985, the first time I picked up a Bible, because I was kind of interested, I wanted to get back to the classics. So I picked up a Bible, I opened up to Genesis, I read the first chapter. I said, good grief. This is childish, it's boring, and it's mythological. I closed up my Bible, I set it aside. I, I had no intention of ever picking it up again. Then in 1986, a year later, I became born again. I was addicted to this book, absolutely addicted. I thought I was going crazy. I, I, I wanted to be reading it all the time. It, it made sense to me now. Well, a lot of it made sense anyways. And it wasn't as if I, after becoming a Christian, it wasn't as if I, I, I said to myself, okay, Bill, you say you're a Christian. From now on, you've got to read that boring, mythological, childish Bible you know, because you're a Christian now. No, well, I, I, I never had to force myself to read it. It's just something that happened. Another thing that happened is I'm a product of the United States Navy. Have you ever heard that phrase, swear like a sailor? Yeah, it's real. That, 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 say, that saying uh, came around for a reason. And I worked with almost all ex-United States Navy. Bad language, bad language. When I became born again, I never had to give that another thought. I, I, I didn't even think about it till later. Uh, one day I kind of said, hey, I don't talk like they do anymore. I didn't have to get up in the morning and say, all right, here we go. Get ready to bite your tongue. Don't say any bad words. You're a Christian now. It just disappeared, just went away. But there were a whole lot of things that didn't go away. And there's a whole lot of things that were worse. I had new enemies that I didn't have before once I became born again, like everybody in here probably experienced. I had other issues in my life that I had before, and I still had afterwards that I had to do battle with. And so I always wondered about that. Why, why didn't the Lord just you know, take all that bad stuff away. He wanted to see if I'd be obedient. You know, you, you go to church on Sunday and you say, uh, Jesus captain of my life, man. I want to do what he wants to do. I'm born again. I love the Lord. You know, all the stuff we say on Sundays. How would you, kn how would you know if you were for real or not? if God didn't leave you with a few issues to deal with to see if you were going to be obedient, right? And also, spiritual training. Spiritual training. If God would have put you in a bubble, you know, perfect wife, perfect house, perfect kids. Yeah, I mean, I do have all those things, right? I do have all those things. But if God was just to put you in a bubble like that, 
you would never know if you were a real Christian or not unless you were put to the test. You would never know. It's for your information, and it's for everybody else's information around you to see if you're legit, right? So that really, really answered a question for me. Personal application. So how are we doing with our battles? That's a question. You know, we have the uh, we have these tribes of Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh. How'd they do with it? How'd they do with their battle? How'd they do with their obedience? We've got their example. Well, what did they do? They identified they had a problem. They were feeling pressure on both sides, right? They were feeling squeezed in. They identified the problem. They identified the culprit. This is Joshua's fault, right? And then they confronted him, and they just proceeded to wait for it to get fixed. So what are we doing? What are we doing with the with the issues that God didn't solve right off the bat, that he left for us to test us? How are we doing with them? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I think some of the some of the common some of the common areas that we might experience would be an unforgiving spirit. Somebody wronged you in the past. They hurt you, and you're not willing to forgive them. How about marriage problems? Maybe your spouse is a real pearl, a constant irritation, right? Maybe you have kid problems, children. Maybe your parents are the problem, brothers, sisters, other family members. Maybe work is your problem, your boss, your coworkers. You might be asking yourself, God, why have you done this to me? Why am I in this situation? And the way we usually handle it is we identify we've got a problem. Yeah, my boss is a, you know, he's a real jerk. You wait for your boss to change. And then you settle into simmering, right, and being miserable. And I'm telling you, this is, this is a real joy killer, how we handle our battles, how we handle our problems, how we handle the enemies that are on the side pressing us in. It's a tremendous joy killer. And I'll show you why and how, and how we can handle it. Look at forgiveness. Let's say that's you. You know, it's the type of thing that you can just be going about your day and all of a sudden this thing that happened to you, this person that wronged you or this person that wronged somebody you love, it just pops into your head, right? Like an old TV rerun. You've seen the script a hundred times and here it is rolling through your head again, right? What do you do with it? How do you handle it? You go to your Bible. See what it says. See what it says about forgiveness. And what does it say? Forgive seven times 70, right? Seven times 70. And that's for the same offense from the same person. 
Jesus, in, in, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, he says, here's how you should pray. You should say, forgive us our sins the same way we forgive others. Use, use that as the measuring stick, Lord. You ever try praying that every day? I want, Lord, I want you to forgive me just the way I forgive others. Well, we, we have our instructions on how we're supposed to handle forgiveness, right? We'll get to that a little bit more later. How about marriage? Let's say you're miserable. You're miserable in your marriage. Okay? You've identified the problem. You've identified the culprit. It's him. It's her. Right? Now all you do is you settle in and wait for them to change. That's all I want. I just want them to change. Right? Then everything will be okay. So you settle into being miserable. And you stew. Go to your Bible. Look in Ephesians chapter 5. What does it say? How does it say husbands should treat their wives? Husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, right? That's the standard. That's the standard for husbands. That's what you should be aiming for. Love your wives like Christ loves the church. How about wives? Submit to your husband and respect your husband. I know. As soon as he gets his act together, then I'll give him some respect, right? That's all I'm waiting for. Just so if he would just change a little bit. I've looked over Ephesians chapter 5 several times. None of that's in there. None of it. It isn't dependent on them. You have your instructions. You have your marching orders, right? Children. Ephesians chapter 6, children, obey your parents. Pretty clear. You've got work problems, your boss. What's the Bible say about that? It says treat your job as if God is your boss, right? Treat your job as if you're working for God. You know, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, wow, what a difference. I mean, I'm a pretty good worker, right? I'm a pretty hard worker, pretty diligent. But what if I, when I got started in the morning, what if I faced my job? I'm working for God today. He's my boss. That's going to be the quality of my work today. That's going to be a quality of my effort today. I'm working for God. The boss is out of the picture, all right? He's, in, he's not important. I'm working for God today. What a difference that would make. Joy killers. These are joy killers. Now, let me just clarify something. If you've had a sudden and tragic loss, we're not talking about those types of things. We're talking about the type where sin is just pushing in on you. It's pressing in. You can feel it. And every day you're just kind of a little miserable waiting for somebody else to change. These are the type of things we're talking about here. So what do we do about it? Well, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, what does Jesus say to do about sin? He says, if your right hand is causing you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, what do you Pluck it out. Okay? Only a crazy person would really do any of that stuff. Jesus' point was, the only way to deal with sin is drastically. You've got to kill it. You've got to kill it. So I suggest to you, in 
And here's how it usually happens. You're just going along. Like we said, it pops into your head, right? Pops into your head. My spouse, and boom, there goes that script rolling through your head. You've got to stop it right then. You've got to go to battle with sin. You've got to make up your mind. I'm going to kill this. I'm going to absolutely kill this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to do what the Bible says. Immediately, when something like that starts to go through your head, you, you recognize it. You say, Jesus, let's go to battle. I need you to come with me. I need you to go before me. Let's go to battle. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to have these thoughts anymore. I want, I want to be like what it says in here. I want to love my wife like Christ loves the church. I want to respect my husband regardless of what you know, the type of person he is. Okay? Every single time you go to battle. And you know what? There's actually joy in battle. When you are in battle for the king, when you are in battle to do what the Bible says, to do what's right, the joy is in the battle. The joy is not in the victory. Because when is the victory going to come? It may never come. Right? You can sit around and be miserable for 30, 40 years waiting for him or her to change or your boss to change. But joy is not in victory. There's only one victory, and that's on the other side. That's not on this side of death. That's the only guaranteed victory. Up to that point, you're almost guaranteed to be in battle. And you've got... You've got to kill these things. You've got to kill them now. And it, it, it will not happen immediately. I can almost guarantee it. But you will start to be more in tune to when these things start to pop in your head or when these situations start to arise that you grab hold of Jesus and you say, I need your help. I need your help. I need to be victorious. I need to be obedient and it will actually bring joy to your lives. It'll bring the joy back. You, you, won't, you won't just be sitting waiting for things to change. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. If we look back in Judges again, you don't have to turn there. Judges chapter 14, we can see an example of joy in the battle. And that was Caleb. That was Caleb. Remember we talked about Caleb. He was one of the two that made it through the uh, wilderness. He made it into the promised land. Moses promised him. He said, hey, because you were a good spy, you were a faithful spy, you're going to get some land in the promised land. And so Caleb, in, in uh, Joshua 14, Caleb goes to Joshua. All right, you're, uh, you're appointing the land right now. I'm 85 years old. He says, I am just as strong now as I was 45 years ago. I'm ready to take my land. And by the way, he says, my land is the one with the Anakim, the Anakites. Remember who the Anakites were? They were the, they were the real giants, right? They were the ones when the 12 spies back in Numbers 13 went and looked at the promised land. They came back and they said, hey, there's Anakites over there. We can't do this. 
And here's Caleb at 85 years old. He says, I want my land. They've got the Anakites in there. I'm ready. If the Lord comes with me, I'm ready to go conquer it. When you read that passage, you can feel the joy. He's looking forward to it. He's looking forward to be obedient. And what's he doing? He's going to fight the giants. For goodness sakes, we could totally justify it if Caleb would have taken a different, uh, a, a different attitude about this and would have gone to Joshua and said, hey, look, I'm 85 years old. What do you mean you're going to give me the land with the Anakites there? Come on. I was one of the good spies. I want the easy land. He have nothing of that. He was looking forward to going in and fighting the giants. Compare him to the tribes of uh, Ephraim, the half-tribe of Manasseh. We need more land because it's hard. There's bad guys. We don't want to fight them. That's miserable. That's misery. Okay? That's misery. We don't want any part of that. How did it turn out for him? We keep reading and we see how it turned out for the tribes of Joseph. Well, eventually it says they got strong. And so you would think the next verse would say, and when they got strong, they went in and beat up on the Canaanites. But it doesn't say that. It says they got strong and they integrated them into their economy as forced labor. They brought them in. Part of their society. And then the next verse says, and their sons and daughters intermarried with them. And you can guess what the next verse says. They started worshiping their gods. That's why God said you've got to get rid of them. You can't live with sin on the borders. You can't live in a marriage or a work situation or family situation just letting sin be there on the borders where you're not being obedient. Because pretty soon, it'll just become part of your miserable life, right? Your miserable life. No joy life because you're not dealing with sin like the Bible tells you to, like Caleb did, with joy, excitement. Hey, if God's with me, I could do this. All right? I can think of nothing more miserable. Well, I probably can, but for the sake of argument, than somebody being a Christian for 20 or 30 years dying, going to heaven. There's Jesus. You walk up. Hey, Jesus. Jesus says, boy, that was a disaster. How'd you like that to be the first words? That was a disaster. Oh, uh, what do you mean? You were miserable for 30 years. Why? You were waiting for someone else to change. I was waiting for you to change. I was waiting for you to be obedient. In fact, I put and allowed certain situations into your life for your training and for you to be obedient. Man, who, who wants to get that report? Do you think he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Oh, what part was good? What part was faithful? I mean, you know, I don't think it will work out that way. But on the other hand, what if you never get victory 
But by golly, you're in battle all the time with Jesus by your side, Jesus leading the way. You're in battle all the time because you don't want sin to be any part of your life and you're living life like a Caleb. And then you die and go to heaven and you see Jesus. I think it would probably be like one of those experiences you might have if you've ever been, if you've ever worked with either another person or or a group of people, a team of people, and maybe you went through a very difficult time, a very difficult prolonged time. Uh, I suppose that people in war, I've never been in a war, but I suppose people in war would experience this where you fought with your, you know, your brothers by your side and, and, and and you made it through. You can see, you can run into those people after decades of not seeing them or knowing anything about them. You can run into people like that after going through experiences, and you can you can make eye contact, and all of it. You don't even have to say any words, right? You have a connection. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? So when when that person who has battled sin, the Caleb, you die and you go to heaven and you see Jesus. You make eye contact with Jesus. You know what? You've been in a thousand battles with Jesus fighting sin. A thousand battles being obedient. You don't even have to say anything. He doesn't even have to say anything. You've experienced it together. And boy, if you go into battle against sin, you better, you better take Jesus with you. Right? You better take him because otherwise you will fail. That's the way I want to go to heaven. That's the way I want to see Jesus. I mean, eternally, eternity lasts a long time. I don't want to go there, uh, you know, starting out by, well, that was disappointing. That's just a bad way to start. Okay. What if you've, uh, what if you've been miserable for the last 20 years? I say start today. I say start today. You know what the problems are. You know what the Bible says, how you're supposed to be obedient in those areas. Start today. Go to battle today. And then you know what? Even if you die next week, even if you die tomorrow and you go to heaven, you know, Jesus... He might say something like, well, you're a slow learner, but by golly, you went into battle. You went into battle. Well done, my good and faithful servant, right? It's, it's, it's better to have a good ending, right? A good ending, no matter how short that ending is, it's better to have a good ending than uh, 20 years of misery, okay? Go in to battle today. Stop being miserable if you are. Get your joy from the battle. Follow Caleb's example. Don't just be pressed in. Don't just be waiting for someone else to change. And there's joy. There's joy in it. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for examples like Caleb, Lord, Thank you for examples uh, like the sons of Joseph, uh, too, Lord. We see a good, we see a bad way. Lord, we want to uh, we want to do what 
you say we should when it comes to sin. We want to be obedient. We want to be joyful. We want to be well-received by you, Lord. We want you to be our captain. Lord, help us to navigate these waters. Help us to do what we should be doing. And thank you, Jesus, for going into battle with us, before us. Thank you for guaranteeing joy if we're obedient. Thank you for being a good God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.